You can read along on page 6 in your worship guide if you'd like to from John 1, 19 through 31. The words will also be on the screen behind me. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. This is the word of God. Well, good morning. How are we? Some good choir buzz going on right now. You know, uh, a lot of pop stars got their start in the choir at church. Beyonce, Katy Perry, Justin Timberlake. So we'll pray deeply that that does not happen here. Um, well, my name is Jeff. Excited to be with you all this morning. Um, we are in a series called The Light Shines in the Darkness, where we are preparing our hearts for the arrival of Jesus And obviously this is the last Sunday before Christmas. And if you have kids or if you can remember when you were a kid, this is when their nerves start to fray a little bit, isn't it? This is when they have been waiting since the day after Thanksgiving. They've been singing songs. They've been decorating. They have been just awaiting Christmas Eve and Christmas morning. And it's so close now, yet it seems so far away. I mean, my four-year-old, every day this last week is, is tomorrow Christmas Eve. And you're like, no, it's, it's a week away. And they're like, oh, and every day feels like seven years to them at this point. So, um, but they're expecting it. They're excited for it. And in the same way as we're, we've been in this series of Advent looking at the first chapter of the book of John, we are eagerly awaiting it as well, the birth of the Messiah, the arrival of Jesus. And today we're going to look at one who prepared the way. The one to announce the coming of Jesus. And his name was John the Baptist. For those of you who are new to Christianity, who are exploring its claims, let me give you a quick bio on John the Baptist. Now, he wasn't the author of the book of John. This might seem a little confusing. The author of the book of John was one of the disciples of Jesus, whose name was also John. But John the Baptist was a relative of Jesus, And to give you a bio of him, I want to read about him in this little book. It's a paraphrased Bible called the Jesus Storybook Bible. Jonathan's mentioned it a couple times. If you don't have this, I'd encourage you to pick one up. This is not a Bible just for kids. This is a very encouraging read. Kind of gives us a 15,000 foot view of how the entire Bible points us to Jesus. But I want to, just for a minute, read a little bio about John the Baptist. About the same time Jesus was born, another baby was born. His name was John, 
And God had a special job for him. John was going to get everyone ready for Jesus. So John grew up and, well, to tell you the truth, he was a bit unusual. He lived in the desert. He wore itchy, scratchy outfits made of camel hair. He had a big, big, bushy beard and a long, long, straggly hair. And here is the oddest thing of all. He only ate locusts, short for big, creepy, crunchy grasshoppers, which he dipped in honey to disguise the taste, probably. But God sent John to tell his people something important. Stop running away from God and run to him instead. John said, you need to be rescued. I have good news. The rescuer is coming. Make your hearts ready for him. Yes, get ready because your king is coming back for you. John's purpose in this world was to announce the coming of Christ. And as we jump into the passage here in verse 19, John is in the desert. People are coming to him. He's baptizing them. And if you're a note taker, we're going to look at three simple points today. More like uh, guideposts or a roadmap. The first one is this. We're going to look at John's view of himself. The second, John's view of Jesus. And the third, John's view of us. So let's look at point one, John's view of himself. We're going to pick it up in 19. He's in the desert and the religious leaders, the Jews, they hear about this prophet, this man who has been baptizing. All these people are coming out to hear from him. And so they send some of the Levites, and they send some priests out to see John, and they ask him this very simple question, who are you? Now, they're not asking him his name, but rather, who are you claiming to be? Remember, the Jewish people have been waiting for a Messiah to return. So when they ask, who are you, they're, they're really asking, are you him? Are you the one who has come to free us, to rescue us? to liberate us from our oppressors. And John really quickly in verse 20 says, I am not the Christ. Then they asked him, well, what then? Are you Elijah? Now, Elijah was a great prophet who did not die in ordinary ways. He was taken up to heaven directly in a a cloud. And for centuries, the Jews had believed that one day Elijah would return to herald in this new day. And so they're asking him, are you Elijah? And he responds, I am not. Are you the prophet, they ask. What is that? In Deuteronomy 18, God promises that he will raise up a prophet like Moses to lead the people. So if you're not the Christ and you're not Elijah, are you the prophet? And he says, no. So they said to him, verse 22, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? How would you answer that question? I've been thinking about that question for a week now. Who am I? What do I say about myself? In other words, how do I find or define my identity? If you're taking notes, I would write that down. And maybe start jotting some notes down. Who do you say you are? Keep it in the back of your mind. We're going to try to answer that by the end of this teaching. But let's look at how John answers this question. 
of who are you? He says this, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. This is from the prophet Isaiah. John doesn't give himself a name. He doesn't tell him about his background or his experiences or his accomplishments or that he's been baptizing people in the river or that all these people are coming out to hear from him. He doesn't need a name. He's content with his accomplishments, but they don't define him. He knows his place in the story. John seems very confident in who he is, that he knows himself. And I think a pivotal question as we explore the person of John the Baptist is, what has to happen in the human heart where the proclamation of a name or position or power is not the source of our identity? In other words, how do you get to the place where you're totally content with who you are? And I think this is a process. I think this happens in different times in our life where we have to step back and go, hey, who am I? I had a major identity crisis about seven years ago. Just a little background on myself. I had worked for about eight or nine years at two different churches, one in South Denver and then one here in Carlsbad. I worked with middle school students. How many remember their middle school years? Question one, how many are trying to forget their their middle school years is question two. And I worked for about eight years with middle middle school students. And one of the things about working with that age group is a lot of people come up and they go, man, it's amazing what you do. Which is another way of saying, I would never do what you do. And for the first couple years, it was kind of like, yeah, I just, I love these students. They're at these crossroads of life. It's amazing to minister to them in this way. But they keep telling you this, that, man, it's amazing that you work with middle school students. And after a handful of years, you go, it is pretty amazing that I work with them. Right? You start to, you start to believe this, that what I do has this great self-importance. And so I had created this identity around myself that I had all this experience and I worked for the church and I worked with these middle, middle school students. And through a various, uh, various circumstances, I had finished seminary and we had done that for, my wife Jen and I had worked with middle school students for about eight years and we left the church in Carlsbad. And I ended up in sales shortly after that, selling security. Now talk about the least sexiest job of all time. I sold fire alarm systems and camera systems and burglary systems and access control systems. And I went from this job where I'd created this false sense, false sense of self-importance, to now I'm selling security and I'm pounding the payment and I'm knocking on doors and I'm getting rejected. And I hit a major identity crisis. Who am I? For the first year after I was in sales, I couldn't tell people I just sold security. I, it always went something like this. What, inevitably it comes up, what do you do? And I would say, yeah, I, I'm in sales for security, but you know, I have my master's degree and I'm just, I'm looking at what doors God's going to open to go back in the church. Have you ever been in a place like this where who you were gets ripped out from under you and you start to ask the question like, who am I really? And I came to this place of going, who am I? And it took me a year of wrestling through before I was able to say, yeah, we're for this company, I do sales, period. Leave it at that. 
My identity was based on what I'd done. John's identity, as we see here, is based on, look who Jesus is. Right? His view of himself is someone whose sole purpose is to point people to Jesus. That's point number one. Point number two, let's look at who of John's view of Jesus. Pick it up in 20, verse 25. So they, the religious leaders, they asked him, but why are you baptizing? If you're neither Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not even know. You do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Back in the first century, it was hot, it was dusty, and everyone wore sandals, and so their feet naturally were disgusting. And there was one limitation as a slave. There was one thing you did not have to do back then. If you were a slave with your master, and that was to untie the strap of their sandals. Slaves were not required to do this. And yet John looks at Jesus and says, I'm not even worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. He recognizes his unworthiness in the light of the greatness of Christ. Amazing humility from John. And what's ironic, did you know what Jesus says about John? A couple chapters later, Matthew eleven eleven, he says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. This is the upside down kingdom where the first shall be last and the last shall be first. John was exalted not because of his morality or his good works, but by his faith, his humility, his devotion to Jesus. He understood his identity. He understood his place. But it's challenging, isn't it? Now the Bible teaches, just to clear up some questions about identity, the Bible teaches that when someone puts their faith in Jesus and receives the grace and forgiveness from him, they are a what's known as a new creation. It means their old life is gone and their new life is here. There's a permanent change that happens within us that cannot be reversed. So if you put your faith in Jesus, we would believe that you have a new identity. It's not something you can earn. It's not something you can work for. But the process of stepping into that identity, the process of knowing more of who you are is a term that the Bible calls sanctification. It's a long term that simply means becoming more like Jesus. So the more that we pursue Jesus, the more we seek to know him, the more we step into who we truly are. And I believe John knew Jesus in such an intimate way that he was able to say, man, knowing myself, I'm not even worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. Now, this isn't a profound statement, but we live in a, a world where the worship of our individual identity has become the main religion here in the West, hasn't it? I mean, we worship ourselves. We are conditioned to create a brand of ourselves. What do you do? Where do you eat? Where do you work out? In regard to social media, how we portray ourselves, 
Are you posting updates to create a wonderful, adventurous, travel-filled life? Are you taking your kids on the best adventures? Are you loving life? Hashtag loving life, my favorite. And the more we create this false narrative of our life, this false identity, and there's dozens of studies, Christian and secular, that, that, no, that have proven the more miserable we are. The more we focus on ourselves, the more miserable we become. I don't have to convince you guys of any of this. So we've all experienced the loneliness of feeling like we don't match up to our peers based on how we perceive or see their life to be. Man, and listen, January 1st is coming quick. I need to work out more. I need to eat better. I need to get better grades. I need to find a more fulfilling job. I need to travel to foreign countries. I need to post videos of my kids so they, people don't think they fight all the time. Right? But what if the way of John, the humility in which John sees himself, what if this is the most freeing and fulfilling life there is. Listen to this quote by Paul Tripp. He's a pastor and a counselor. It'll be on the screen behind me. He says this, it's only when you have God in his proper place and are celebrating who he is that you can ever truly know yourself. The theological principle is that knowledge of the creator is fundamental to understanding the creation. To the degree that we fail to worship God for who he is and what he has done will take unseen identity confusion into life. Let me read that last sentence again. To the degree that we've failed to worship God for who he is and what he has done will take unseen identity confusion into life. You know, Jonathan sent an email this last week giving us some encouragement to find a quiet place to get in tune with and this is in quotes, with the glorious reality that the light of the world actually stepped foot on this planet. He encouraged us to find a quiet place, to open our Bibles, to, to seek to know Jesus, to reflect on him coming into this world. And here's the truth in regard to identity. Here's some practical application. You cannot know more of who God has created you to be if you don't seek him on a regular basis. Now this is not a guilt trip. This is actually born out of my own failures. We have to regularly make an effort to put Jesus first. To seek to know him, to spend time with him, to pray to him, to understand him in the scriptures. And he will meet us there. In the book of James, which is the book in the New Testament, it says draw near to God and he will draw near to you. But it is a fight, is it not? It is hard to put down the phone. It is hard to create regular time to seek him. It can be discouraging at times. But let me encourage you that the fight to seek to know Jesus leads to a freedom, a joy, and a fulfillment that this world can never provide. John's view of Jesus is he is greater than we could possibly imagine. And let's look at our last point, point number three. Jesus' view of us. John 128, these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. 
The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. This last verse sums up John's purpose here on earth. He's here not for his own glory, but so Jesus would be revealed in Israel. This is why his name's not important. This is why he is not fit to untie his sandals. Because Jesus deserves all the glory and recognition. Jesus deserves everything. But he didn't come into the world this way, did he? I mean, in two days, we celebrate the fact that Jesus, who is God, who's taken on flesh, came into the world in a manger, in a little town of Bethlehem. And he was from a podunk town called Nazareth. And Jesus grew up a carpenter. And even when he was doing, in his ministry, the Bible says he didn't have a place to lay his head. He was essentially homeless. He was despised. He was eventually killed. But there's one incredible story about Jesus that ties into this passage. The day before he's arrested, the night before, he's with his disciples. In John 13, 3, it says this. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a the towel that was wrapped around him. Is this your view of Jesus? John's not fit to untie his sandals. And yet Jesus doesn't just untie them. He washes the disciples' feet. The God of this world on his knees, cleaning away the muck and the grime and the dirt because of how much he loves us. This is why Christianity is different than any other religion. This is what we celebrate at Christmas, a God that took on flesh, that came to dwell among us. And we are not worthy of him, but by his grace, out of his deep love for us, he invites us to be his children. It is a free gift open to all. So what is our identity as a child of God? Who are you? Well, you have a salvation if you've chosen to put your faith in Jesus that can never perish, spoil, or fade. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are not an accident. There is nothing you can do to make God love you more. You have value in this world. You are not worthy to untie his sandals, but he loves you so much that he came not just to untie your sandals, but to wash your feet. He came to die for you. The Lamb of God, as John writes, here to take away the sins of the world. The more we point to Jesus the more we aim to make him greater and us less, the more we will truly understand 
and know who we are. The realization of Jesus is the realization of self. May we hold on to this as we celebrate the birth of Jesus this Christmas season. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for the example set here by John. It's challenging to live in humble obedience, giving you the glory, Lord. I confess that there are times where I want to be the hero. I want to be the king. I want my identity to be about me. But that is a lie. For there's only one king and one true life, and that is a life of purpose and joy. And that is the life found when we seek to live for the true king. So Jesus, thank you for your grace, for loving us, for taking away our sins. May we seek you with our whole identity. May everything we do point to you. Everything in our life give glory to you. And when we do that, you will meet us and we will know in a much deeper way who we are. So we praise you this morning as we prepare for Christmas in a couple of days. May you set our hearts on the baby, Father, that came into this world and the world was never the same. We pray all this in his holy name. Amen.